Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University, and I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, and Carrie is an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. My guest today is Fred Feldman. Fred is professor emeritus at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. His new book is titled Distributive Justice, Getting What We Deserve from Our Country, and it's published by Oxford University Press. It's a fantastic book. And in it, Fred resuscitates and revives and revises a view of distributive justice that for a long time most political philosophers had considered um, uh, debunked or moribund or uh, in some other way debilitated. Um, to be more specific, Fred has proposed an original and I think quite sturdy uh, version of desertism about distributive justice. Now, speaking very roughly, desertism is the view according to which justice prevails in a society when all of its members get what they deserve, in some sense of that phrase, from whatever entity has the job of enacting justice. Now, that's entirely too sketchy, of course. And um, as we'll see, uh, I think, in the conversation to come, um, sort of removing some of the, the, the sketchiness and getting more precise is, is really uh, 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 the task for the desertist um, and um, Professor Feldman's main task in the book. Um, now, um, so on the other hand, we might say desertism, even in the sketchy form, um, seems so uh, obviously correct as to not need a theory. Um, after all, what could be more simple. Uh, uh, what else could justice be but a state of affairs where everyone gets her due? Um, but uh, again, as Feldman shows, uh, things aren't simple uh, with desertism. A lot of nuance is required. He's in the business in this book of providing the necessary nuance and uh, providing all the details that would be required to reveal uh, desertism to be a, a formidable view Um with respect, a formidable view about distributive justice. So, um, as I've just indicated, uh, there's a whole lot to talk about. Uh, and I highly recommend uh, uh, Fred Feldman's book uh, to anyone who's interested in political philosophy and certainly to anyone who works on distributive justice. Um, but before we get into the details and the specifics of Feldman's argument, um, we usually begin uh, these podcasts uh, by greeting our guests. So, let me do that. Hello, Fred. Uh, good morning, Bob. Thanks very much for having me. It's really a pleasure to have this chance to talk about the book. Well, it's wonderful of you to uh, to uh, be generous with your time and to and to appear on the program. Um, as I just uh, was talking, uh, I, uh, I'm sure um, I haven't said anything you disagree with yet. Um, just desertism is a very um, nuanced uh, view, and uh, your book uh, introduces a lot of uh, the required nuance. It seems to me. Um, but why don't we um, start off uh, by um, asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself? 
Okay. Well, I was uh, born in uh, Newark, New Jersey, and I grew up in Maplewood, New Jersey. And my best friend was a guy named Jack who lived across the street. He was a little older than me. And uh, he had gone off to the University of Pennsylvania. And um, I was still stuck in high school. And he came back and uh, he... He, I said, well, what, what, what did you learn? What were you doing there? And he told me this wonderful story about something that happened in his introduction to philosophy class. And it had to do with Descartes. And uh, the teacher said that Descartes had said, I think, therefore, I exist. And uh, under the circumstances, Descartes was trying to find the first truth that comes to a person who reasons in an orderly way. And the first truth was that he existed. And I thought, that's really wonderful. Wow, the first truth, I exist. And then my friend Jack said to me, well, actually, we also learned that Bertrand Russell had shown that this whole thing was completely hopeless because the premise, I think, already presupposed the existence of the self, I, and that Descartes had no no justification for saying, I think he, he if he was starting from scratch, he should have said, well, there's some thinking going on here. <laughs> and from that premise, he could never derive the conclusion that he exists. So he would have been stuck if he had done it in a better way. And I said, well, now that's really neat. I would <laughs> love to take classes about that kind of stuff. I thought that was wonderful. And time came for me to go to college, and I thought I was a I was a really a very cocky guy, and I applied only to one college, a little college down near Philadelphia, and uh, I didn't get in, and I couldn't believe it. I said, "How is this possible? I'm so so wonderful. Why wouldn't they let me in?" <laughs> and my, my guidance advisor said, "Well, you know, they have a quota for Jews, and probably there were." Several Jews who were smarter than you. (laughs) And so I was really stuck. And as a result of that, I ended up in a different college where they didn't do much philosophy. And as a result of that, my start in graduate school was delayed. And um, I really I really messed up there. I made a stupid decision and it it, uh, set me back probably by five years. But eventually I ended up at Brown where my teacher was Roderick Chisholm. And other people who were there were Ernie Souza and Jaguan Kim and Herbert Heidelberger, all friends of mine and some wonderful graduate students. And I thought it was, it was just fabulous. I, I, I thought it was heaven on earth, Providence, Rhode Island. <laughs> and I did a dissertation mainly in uh, metaphysics about uh, identity with Chisholm. And I went off to Chicago Circle for my first job with Ruth Marcus, and that was great. But I didn't like Chicago, and I had an opportunity to come to UMass in 1969. But I had to agree at that time that I would do history of philosophy. So I was mainly doing stuff about Descartes and Leibniz and Locke. And then uh, as a result of some personal interactions with one of my colleagues, I ended up teaching ethics. (laughs) And I was interested in deontic logic, and I was in utilitarianism, and I wrote a book about that, and I was very interested in that. And I was doing ethics, but then my daughter, our first child, 
came down with a uh, serious illness, a form of cancer, and she was had to undergo a lot of surgery, and it was really terrible, and eventually she died. And uh, I wrote a book about death, Confrontations with the Reaper, and I I was interested in philosophical problems about the nature and the badness of death. And I went around giving talks in various places, and I was always talking about death, and my view about the evil of death was that the badness of a person's death for the person is uh, determined by the goodness of the for the person of the life that's thereby lost. Mm. You know, the deprivation view. Right. And people ask me a lot of questions about that. Isn't, isn't my view a view about the difference in the welfare that a person actually enjoys and the welfare that the person would have enjoyed if the person hadn't died, and that was right. And so I had to come up with a view about what makes for welfare, And after thinking about it for a while, I came up with the idea that um, a person's welfare is not simply a matter of the amounts of pleasure and pain that the person enjoys and suffers, but adjusted for dessert. I got interested in uh, dessert because I was interested in dessert-adjusted welfare. Mm -hmm. And I made use of that idea also in a utilitarian theory, dessert-adjusted utilitarian, hedonistic utilitarian theory. And then as I got uh, along, I taught, I thought I was interested in justice because I thought that my utilitarian idea was the idea that uh, an act is right if it maximizes utility adjusted for justice. And so I had to come up with some view about justice. And so I came up with a confused idea about justice and it, I published some papers about that, and they were really mixed up, very confused. I'm sort of embarrassed about them. But then when I got older and I was ready, almost ready to retire, and some of my students asked me to teach a class about justice, I did. And then I worked it up into this book. It took me a while and didn't get published until after I was retired. But that's where the book about justice came from and how it fits into my personal my personal <laughs> confused passage <laughs> through various colleges. <laughs> well, um, uh, it's 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 a it's a um, it's a worthy contribution uh, uh, in in any case. Um, so um, why don't we um, why don't we turn to to talking about the contents of the book? Uh, would that be okay? Yeah, sure, sure. So um, you know, I like to begin these um, conversations. Uh, with um, questions about the author's met- methodology or the approach or how the author understands the, the philosophical um, uh, um, or maybe the metaphilosophical uh, commitments going into the inquiry. So I, I want to begin with, a, with a, a question about where your book begins, because it does begin on by raising a couple of um, methodological and sort of conceptual observations about um, – uh, the the field in, in, in which uh, of political philosophy in which people theorize justice. Um, so you open with what looked to me like some very well considered remarks about the sheer variety of um, things that philosophers set about theorizing under the banner of justice. For some, justice is a virtue of institutions or states. For others, justice is another name for the entirety of virtue. Um, 
some theorized justice proposing views about what ought to be done, you say. In other cases, people who are theorizing justice are proposing views about how some specific groups of people should act, um, while there are others that are interested in identifying um, the social conditions that are such that were they to prevail, it would be correct to call that society just. So I wanted to just ask you to begin by sort of running us through some of the sort of um, what I what I, what we might call sort of the sort of conceptual housekeeping that the book book begins with. Okay, fine. Uh, I had originally wanted to have a big um, uh, quotation from G.E. Moore at the beginning of the book, but <laughs> Cambridge University Press wouldn't allow me to quote such a long passage <laughs> from the preface to uh, Principia Ethica. And Moore says there, uh, and here I'm, I'm reading this off a sheet of paper, it appears to me that in ethics, as in all other philosophical studies, the difficulties and disagreements of which its history is full are mainly due to a very simple cause, namely to the attempt to answer questions without first discovering precisely what question it is which you desire to answer. I, I think that's just a wonderful insight that Moore had there. Yeah. And I, I think it's something that philosophers are have been guilty of not taking into consideration. They launch into a discussion of answers to a question before they've slowed up enough to think about what question it is that they mean to be answering. This, this um, has a special um impact on discussions of justice. If you, if you look into standard encyclopedia articles about distributive justice, you'll regularly see that the, um, the author says, well, there are several main philosophers who have been talking about justice, and they say Rawls, Nozick, Parfit, Frankfurt. They say, you know, there's the, the difference principle, and there's prioritarianism and there's sufficientism and there's egalitarianism. These are all theories of justice. But it seems to me that if you look more closely at the actual words of the philosophers that they're talking about there, in many cases, it's not clear that they're talking about justice at all. Mm. They're offering a theory about some other thing. This comes out in the case of it's strikingly in the case of Rawls. Because, we're all, you know, the book is entitled A Theory of Justice, and he's, everybody thinks he's given a theory of justice. But it, 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 I was just amazed when I looked toward the back end of his book, and he's, he's, describing, he's describing what um, what people in the original position would be, what theories that they would be talking about and weighing, which should be the theory of justice for our society. And one says, uh, well, egoism, egoism, we should, we should go for egoism. And Rawls distinguishes a couple of different kinds of egoism. And then another person says, well, um, sufficientism. Um, another, an, another says the theory of prima facie duties. Uh, another says utilitarianism. Another says, you know, and you say, why, why would people in the original position be talking about all these theories and the normative ethics of behavior? Why would they be talking about the prima facie duties? Why would they be talking, why would they be talking 
uh, about egoism if they're supposed to be coming up with a theory of justice. And it struck me that Rawls was really completely confused about whether he was talking about what people ought to do, what our moral obligations are, or whether he was talking about what justice requires. And amazingly enough, I found a passage in a, a later book by Rawls in which he comes right out and says, boy, when I wrote um, A Theory of Justice, I was just confusedly ramming together the normative ethics of behavior about how we ought to behave and political philosophy, what would be just. And he says, this is in the book about liberalism. He says now he sees that those are different questions. Now he just wants to talk about political philosophy. Uh, and if you look at Parfit, for example, in a paper that's supposed to be about ju- his theory of justice, he distinguishes two different kinds of uh, of prioritarianism. And one is a theory about what would be bad. It's bad for people to get what well, he's describing egalitarianism. It's bad when people get less than they less than others through no fault of their own. That's that seems like axiology, a theory of value about what would be bad. And then he says, and then there's a deontic form of it, which says we should arrange things so that people don't get less than others. Now, that's a theory. It looks to me like a theory in normative ethics, and neither one of them is a theory of justice. And I think, you know, Harry Frankfurt has this paper about sufficientism. And he he says uh, what's morally important is not equality. What's morally important is that everybody should get enough. And he never, the word justice doesn't even appear in the article. Right. He's talking about what, what's morally important. And other people talk about theories of justice. They, they're alleged to be talking about theories of justice. And they, talk, they, they say, this is, what, this is what we seek. This is what we aim for. This is what we want. They never say that this is what would be most just. So it seems to me that there's really it's tremendously important at the outset of any such discussion that we should really make it very clear if we're trying to present a theory of justice, that that's our target. The target is distributive justice. That's what we're aiming to present a theory about. And then we run into this really bizarre situation where. With respect to the most important contributors to the literature, it becomes unclear whether they were really trying to give an answer to the question, what makes for distributive justice in a state? They could be trying to present some theory about some other topic. And um, so I'm in an awkward position in the book where I want to criticize these theories, and the theories are associated with certain famous philosophers, and yet... Uh, it's not clear to me that these philosophers were actually presenting theories about the topic that's normally uh, said to be their topic. So I think we have to um, we have to identify the target, right. distributive justice. Right, and so the part of the awkwardness that you're that you're mentioning, and um, one of the things that you uh, are very judicious, I think, um, in doing in the book is trying very carefully to formulate the leading conceptions in the literature of justice as um, trying to formulate them in a way that makes them even philosophically comparable. (laughs) 
right? That's exactly that's exactly right. Yes. Uh, so that's that it's able to say, you know, uh, the, the you know the Rawlsian view says this, the priority view or the su- sufficiency view says this, my view says this, and in each case we're getting a formulation that starts roughly with the same kind of – has the same, we might say, logical structure. A society is perfectly just if and only if, and then you fill in a blank. Is that right? Exactly, yes. But then I'm in a strange position where if uh, if Rawls could speak up and defend himself, he might say, wow, that's a nice criticism of this view that you have written down in your book. But I never said that. <laughs> and Parfit, if he could speak up, might say, well, that's a nice view, a nice criticism of that view. but I never said that. You know, if you look at my book, I never said that. And, of course, Frankfurt could say that the view that I criticize is not the view that he he had actually stated. He stated a view about moral importance, and I don't state any view about moral importance. So I'm in an awkward position of criticizing views and mentioning the names of certain philosophers. And uh, I, it's not really clear to me that I can pin these views on the philosophers to whom they're normally attributed. <laughs> it is an awkward position to be in, and, and um, you know, let's not um, let's not pass over the, the further kind of awkwardness um, where one might um, have the following thought: right, that um, debates over justice have been um, the most vibrant, active sites within political philosophy for sixty years now. Um, it would be a scandal. <laughs> we had one more scandal to philosophy <laughs> uh, if uh, if it were to turn out that um, the main the, the the purported main contenders in these debates are not even conceptions of the same thing. <laughs> yeah, Does, doesn't that make Moore's remark ever more important? It appears to me that in ethics. <laughs> the difficulties and disagreements of which its history is full are mainly due to a very simple cause, namely the attempt to answer questions without discovering precisely what question it is which you desire to answer. Yeah, that seems right. Uh, if people, people have been trying to answer different questions, no wonder they have come up with different answers. And uh, again, th- this also might explain the seeming interminability of some of the debates, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so th- that th- that's all that's all very helpful. So your your view then is offered as an attempt, uh, both to provide a, a desertist conception of um, distributive justice and to display its relative merits to competitors judiciously formulated as um, as proper competitors, we can say. And that is that you take that um, when we're setting about to um, theorize distributive political economic justice, um, we are interested in specifying the conditions under which, the social conditions under which, it would be correct to call a society just. Is that right? Is that how you understand the, the target question? Uh, yes. Okay. Um, good. Um, so why don't we, again, folks, the, uh, the, the, the methodological stuff with which, um, uh, Fred begins is, 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 I think 
really, really quite well done and 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 very, very interesting. But um, let's move on to the theory. Would would that be? No, 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 oh, no. Oh, good. No, oh, so say more. <laughs> I don't want to do that. I don't want to move on to the theory until I say a little bit more about what it's supposed to be a, a theory about. Good. Yes, please continue. Uh, it seems to me that there's many different uh, virtues or excellences that a state could have. Uh, such things as having great scientists or artists or athletes and uh, being a great world power or being able to help out poor people who are suffering from hurricanes or tornadoes, uh, having great foreign policy. You know, there's all kinds of virtues that a state can have. Among the virtues that a state can have is one that concerns how the state goes about distributing certain benefits and burdens among its own citizens. Now, it seems to me that there are certain things and different theories of justice are going to have different views about what these things are, but certain things that it seems quite natural to say that uh, it's part of the business of a government to see to it that these things are distributed among the citizens in a, in a fair way. Things like the benefits and burdens that uh, states can distribute, the right to vote or the right or the duty to serve in the army or um, the right to to uh, having a, a subsidy to help you go to to pay your college tuition. If you go to a state college or health care, these are things you know, the opportunity to have uh, health insurance. These are th- things that it it naturally falls to a state to see to or ensure a good distribution among um, the citizens. There's debate about what precisely those things are. So let's just call them the currency of justice, Mm -hmm. the things such that it falls to a state to ensure that they're well distributed among its citizens. Different theories of justice then are going to have different views about what the currency of justice is. Um, now, I want to understand distributive justice. That's my target as um, the virtue that a state has if it does a really excellent job of distributing the currency of justice among its citizens. So if that's right, then there's lots of things that people could could complain about in a country without complaining about um, distributive justice. So somebody could say, well, the United States, this is terrible. Our ping pong team has never done very well in the Olympics. I think we should have a better uh, Olympic team. Or somebody could say, oh, I'm really disappointed with the United States. This is terrible. There's all these disasters going on in Africa and poverty and illness, and we're not doing enough to help those people out. We should do more. Or somebody could say, uh, we haven't done enough to make foreign governments recognize the importance of uh, ensuring the civil rights of their citizens. You know, we, we should do more on that front. We could have all these complaints about our government. None of them is a complaint about distributive justice, as I'm conceiving it, because none of them None of them focuses on the way in which the currency of justice is being distributed among citizens of this country. So I'm, I'm not saying that justice is being a great state or 
being excellent in all the ways in which a state could be excellent. Justice, is, as I'm conceiving of it, is much more narrow than that. It's simply um, doing a, an excellent job of ensuring that the currency of justice is well distributed among the citizens. So that's, that, that's the topic that I want to talk about. And it's not clear to me that people who write on justice always have that particular target in mind. And if not, well, then they're talking about something different from what I'm talking about. Right. Okay. Yeah. That Excellent. Um, um, do we want to uh, get into the desertism at this point? Would that be good? Well, uh, yes. Um, let, let me just say, let me just sort of in a, in a preliminary way, say something about some some answers that have been given to this question. That'll provide a, a sort of um, spot where I can say what my view is. Okay. Good. Yeah, let's do that. So suppose somebody here's an egalitarian view, and people have actually defended this view. They might say there's perfect justice in a country if the currency of just justice is distributed equally among the citizens. Now, if you combine that with a view that the currency of justice is wealth, then you have a kind of egalitarianism of wealth that says you have distributive justice in a country, perfect justice, if wealth is distributed equally. Now, a sufficientist view would say uh, they might agree about the currency of justice. They might say it's wealth, but they might say, no, equality is not what makes for justice. It's that everybody should have a sufficient amount. And so that view would say we have perfect distributive justice in a country. If every citizen of that country, the government sees to it that every citizen of that country has at least a sufficient amount of wealth. And you, you, you might have um, a Rawlsian difference principle type view. If you were to say we have perfect justice in a country, if the government sees to it that the people in the worst off class with respect to primary social goods, which they take to be the currency of justice. Everybody in the worst off class has the largest feasible share of primary social goods. So th- you know, th- those are some, some possible views. Uh, and my view then would be the view that all of those are mistaken. And the real truth is that you have perfect distributive justice in a country if the currency of justice is distributed according to desert, that is, if each citizen of the country gets a share of the currency of justice um, in accord with the amount that he deserves. And I also want to add to that that where we have imperfect justice in a country, we can measure the approximation that that distribution has to a perfect distribution, and then we can say that one country is more distributively just than another, provided that the way that the currency of justice is distributed more closely approximates a perfect distribution, which would be in accord with dessert. So that, that, that's the view. Well, that's excellent. So, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, there are lots of varieties of dessertism, though. So there are th- that statement... Um, uh, uh, that you've just offered of, of, of what the view is doesn't disambiguate your particular articulation of desertism uh, from others that are in currency because we still have to ask the question 
uh, yeah, what's dessert? Uh, can you can you help us a little bit on that? Uh, yes. Good. <laughs> I figured you would be able. Well, to. I think I can help. I'm not so sure. <laughs> Maybe some people will not be helped by what I say. <clears throat> I think that the concept of dessert is familiar. We talk about dessert all the time. You 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 say a student deserves to get a high grade because the student produced good work. Or we say that a criminal deserves a long jail sentence because he committed such a terrible crime or he's been found guilty of it. We can say, as Bill and Melinda Gates do, did, that uh, everybody deserves the chance to, uh, what, what was their thing, a healthful or uh, healthy and something or other life. Uh, or, uh, you know, we talk about dessert all the time. You, somebody steps on my toe and I look over at him and I feel I, des- I deserve an apology from this guy. He just stepped on my toe. Uh, or if uh, you receive a nice uh, gift from somebody and you person might feel that they de- they deserve a thank you note. Mm-hmm. So dessert is very common and philosophers make use of the concept of dessert more technically uh, in lots of different uh, contexts, uh, think, thinking that uh, there's this Kantian idea that uh, happiness is a great good, but especially if the person who receives it deserves to have it. Mm-hmm. So it's important to to be clear about uh, what what specific form of dessert I'm talking about. One thing about dessert claims is that when when we when somebody deserves something, there has to be some basis upon which the person deserves it. You can't just deserve something for no reason at all. There's got to be some basis for uh, dessert, and. Uh, Sometimes when people talk about dessert, they have in mind the case in which you deserve something because you've been virtuous or morally excellent or good. And I want to distinguish that from the sort of dessert that I'm talking about. That that I would want to call moral merit and say, yeah, there's such a thing as dessert based upon moral virtue. Let's call that moral merit. Then there's dessert just based upon the fact that you're a human being, you know, we might think that you deserve a certain amount of respect just because you're a human being. All these different kinds of, um, all these different sorts of dessert, that, 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 that's different from what I have in mind. What I have in mind is uh, political economic dessert. Things that you deserve from your country in virtue of the fact that you're a citizen of that country that you need these things in order to flourish as a human being, and you can't get them without being a member of a civilized community. And I think that the the things that you deserve in that way are such things as, this is the Hobbesian element in the theory, Mm -hmm. such things as security, so that you, you deserve to live in a country where the government or some agency of the government or somebody overseen by the government will um, see to your security, either with an army or with a police force or with a national guard or with a militia or somebody is going to help you out. And that's because you need to have security in order to flourish as a human being and no individual, well, very few individuals, 
have the power to to guarantee their own security. Uh, even, even well, you know, maybe we have a counterexample to that nowadays, but most of us are not capable of putting together uh, defense forces that would be strong enough to protect us from foreign or local uh, attacks. We need to have a police force, somebody that we can turn to in times of need for security. Well, I think that that part, part of what we deserve from our country, among our political economic deserts, are uh, security. That's the Hobbesian element. Then there's an element that I got from Obama, the Obamian element, and that is a need for opportunity. We there, There's things that we need in order to develop and grow and flourish that we're not able to provide without being embedded in a community. And I have in mind here such things as such things as an educational system, a banking system. Nowadays, the Internet, the interstate highway system, the judicial system, all these things that when they are in place and they're available, they make it possible for us to grow and flourish and develop our abilities and uh, reach our potentials or get closer to our potentials in uh, various areas, business, uh, academics, sports, uh, arts, that we otherwise wouldn't be able to do. So I think that those are more political economic desserts, other things that we deserve in the relevant political economic way. And then I think there's some entitlements, some legal entitlements. I think under certain circumstances, the fact that you're legally entitled to something makes you deserve, in my way, to get that thing. For an example, um, suppose that you filed your income tax in accord with the regulations and suppose they're reasonable regulations and um, – Suppose that after all is said and done, it turns out that the government has, the IRS has uh, taken more in withholding tax from you than uh, you actually owe them, according to the income tax, and you are entitled to a certain refund. Now I think that you, um, if the conditions are satisfied, that you deserve to get your refund. And I think that your dessert of that refund counts as a political economic dessert because you're entitled to it by uh, the regulations of an institution that is a a reasonable, sensible um, institution that's been properly established in your country, then I think that you can get dessert because you have political economic dessert because of that entitlement. So there's the three features, um, need for security, the need for opportunity, and legitimate entitlement – that yield political economic uh, desserts on those specified bases. And so now I can say on my form of desertism, we have justice in a country, political economic justice, if the citizens of the country receive the political economic desserts that they deserve from the government on the basis of their political economic desert basis. So that's my view. And the uh, perfect. And the these dessert bases, the the, the bases for dessert are 
these are, are tied to these sort of um, needs for human flourishing that would not be available to individuals but for a well-functioning community. Is is that right? That's right. I, I, this, this is a kind of Aristotelian idea. Right. That's what I was trying to bring, bring out, yeah. I, I take it that that we have community essential needs. And that I don't think Aristotle used precisely that terminology, but I get the idea from him. Uh, that is, things that we need in order to flourish as human beings, but things that no individual would be able to guarantee to himself without being embedded in a community that gathers together to provide them for him or her. So those things are community essential needs, and many uh, many of the features of um, my conception of justice is based upon that. Uh, that um, it's the assurance of these things that makes for justice in a country. Excellent, and. So just let's draw out a couple of the contrasts that um, that uh, that we've already touched upon that that um, are even implicit, and maybe even obvious um, uh, now that the your version of desertism is on the table. So one set of contrasts, I guess, involves um, the contrast between your version of desertism and um, the moral merit kinds of conceptions of desertism. So uh, your invocation of um, political desert uh, bases uh, looks like and the, the the community the communal needs stuff we're not as desertists on the Feldman view we're not in the business of assessing anyone's overall moral merit as a way of determining their desert is that right that's right I have a nice example that's supposed to illustrate the difference between desert and moral merit it's a little tricky case. Suppose we have two two brothers, identical twin brothers, and um, suppose that they um, earn the same amount of money and they have the same number of dependents and they file the same income tax and they um, uh, they they get the same size uh, re, uh, return of um, the excess that they paid. Each gets a check from the government for a certain amount of money. Suppose it turns out that one of these twin brothers is a very nice person, a really a morally upstanding person, a person who keeps his promises and he pays his debts and he uh, is kind and he does volunteer work. And he's really a very nice guy, very pleasant, uh, decent person, an admirable person with a lot of virtue. Uh, and suppose the other twin brother has turned out just the reverse. He's a nasty person. He's just a very unpleasant guy. He's rude to people. And he uh, sometimes breaks his promises to his family members and so on. Now, one of them, one of them is more morally meritorious than the other. Because one of them is a more virtuous person than the other. And yet they got the same size income tax refund. Now, if we had a theory that says that justice obtains when people get the benefits that they deserve on the basis of their moral merit, we'd have to say there's an injustice here, that the state is to blame, that somehow 
if there were an external justice review board looking down on this situation in this country, they would have to say, whoa, wait a minute, there's an injustice going on here. The nasty twin is getting just as much, just as big an income tax return refund as the morally virtuous twin. Uh, I, I, I'm inclined to say, no, that isn't the business of government to check to see about the moral virtue of people who have um, filed their income taxes. Uh, it's their duty to return the money in accord with the, the regulations that the IRS uh, has been following. And if the two brothers are alike with respect to income and they're alike with respect to withholdings, they're alike with respect to dependents and so on, then uh, they're entitled to equal refunds and um, justice has been done if they get what they deserve on the basis of their political economic deserts, not on the basis of their moral merit. So I think those are different. Those are different ideas. Right. Of course. And I think that. Yes. No, you can continue, please. Well, I wanted to say it's also important to distinguish between uh, dessert, as I'm, I'm using the term, and entitlement. Right. Uh, a person could be entitled to something that he doesn't deserve, and he could deserve something that he's not entitled to. And another twin brother case is going to establish that, or constitute my argument for it anyway. That is, suppose we have a grandfather who has some great wealth, and he has two grandsons, and the grandsons, um, one is a very nasty person, a terrible person, and uh, just has treated the grandfather very rudely, insulted the grandfather, never took him to his medical appointments, never sat up with him while he was dying. The other grandson had been very kind to the grandfather, always behaved very respectfully, did drive him to his medical appointments, and so on. And suppose the... Uh, the grandfather, for some reason, decides to leave his money to the nasty grandson and not to the virtuous, excellent grandson. You know, we, we might say the the virtuous grandson, the nice grandson, this is not political economic dessert, but he morally deserves, he has dessert of some of the, some of the uh, estate, but he isn't entitled to it. And he isn't entitled to it because, uh, in accordance with all the existing rules and regulations, uh, the grandfather gave it to the other grandson. And so if no rules have been broken, no laws have been broken, then the nasty son is entitled but doesn't deserve the money. And the virtuous grandson does deserve the money, but he isn't entitled. So entitlement is a different idea from uh, desert. My theory is a theory about dessert, but it's not about moral dessert. It's a theory about political economic uh, dessert, dessert based upon community essential needs. Excellent. Okay. Yeah, that 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 disambiguates your version of dessertism from um, from others, and particularly the ones that are often the targets of um, philosophers' critiques, um, which we'll get to uh, in in a moment. Um, can we just very quickly, uh, if, you're, if, if we're able, to sort of draw or punctuate the distinctions between your version of desertism and some uh, run-of-the-mill uh, garden-variety versions of egalitarianism um, and the sufficiency view? So it looks as if um, your version of desertism um, 
would uh, allow um, uh, would allow for um, uh, certain inequalities um, uh, that that a, a a perfectly just society could um, involve perhaps even considerable disparities. Is that right? Among whatever it is that justice is in the business of distributing. Correct. That's exactly right. Yes. Uh, And in that respect, it's not an egalitarian view or it's distinguished from an egalitarian view. Right. Now, it would be a very extreme sort of egalitarian who would say such a thing as this. But we can imagine a form of egalitarianism that says you have perfect justice in a state if the currency of justice is distributed equally among the citizens. And my view, corresponding view, would be you have perfect justice in a state if the currency of justice is distributed to the citizens of the state in accordance with their desert of it. Now, you can imagine a country in which some of the people are, no, lazy, worthless, non-contributing, non-volunteering, drug-addicted, sleazy I, I'm about to use some terminology that be too heavily loaded. I, I want to be careful of this. But pe- people who really, we look at them and we say, boy, this guy, he's just mooching off the state. He's taking advantage of, of his welfare check every month just to buy more drugs. And um, he has never done anything for, for, for his fellow citizens and, Imagine a class of people like that, and then there's a class of excellent people who work very hard and make a lot of contributions and do a lot. And uh, if we had the egalitarian view that everybody deserves an equal share of political economic – everybody deserves an equal share of the currency of justice, then we would have to imagine a situation in which every month when it comes time for the checks to be distributed – that the lazy, worthless bums would get a check big enough to bring them up to the equalized uh, average, and the wonderful, kind-hearted volunteers would get a a notice saying they owe more money because their money has to be transferred to the uh, lazy bums. Now, if egalitarianism is taken very seriously as the view that we have justice only if... uh, all citizens get equal shares of the currency of justice, then we'd have to say in a case like that, that justice requires that bits of the currency of justice should be taken away from the more deserving people and should be given to the less deserving people, which strikes me as being uh, really, I mean, very impossible. I, I, could, I could use some, some different terminology there, but I, I don't want to be on record using harsh terminology. Uh, <laughs> is it, uh, it seems to me that it's just very implausible. And I think the natural reaction to that would be to say, the problem here is that some of these people don't deserve to be equalized upwards. And some of these people don't deserve to be equalized downwards. The people, the, the good people deserve to have more and the Worthless, unvirtuous people deserve to have less. So desertism would would uh, evaluate that case much better than um, than a form than a very extreme form of egalitarianism would. Right, and I take it that the um, uh, 
the the aim of a lot of more sophisticated versions of egalitarianism is to guard the view uh, against those kinds of worries about um, uh, you know patterns of distribution that look like they're so far out of whack with uh, plausible conceptions of what people deserve. <laughs> yes, I think that's right, and I think you know this is this is a point that I find tremendously interesting. Um, we, we can imagine somebody starting out as a desertist, thinking that justice requires that people get what they deserve. And then having the person think, uh, well, what do pe- all people deserve equally. Pe- people, you know, pe- having this egalitarian insight, all people deserve equal. And so we have justice when everybody gets an equal share. So, you know, that shows a kind of priority of desertism. But it also points up the difficulty with the view which is uh, the egalitarianism of desert. It just doesn't seem to me to be true that all people are equally deserving. It seems to me that some people deserve more than others, uh, depending upon what they've done. You know, if somebody has been a brilliant entrepreneur, he's come up with a wonderful idea, uh, a new drug or a, a car that runs on water or something, it makes a lot of money for that. Well, goodness he deserves more than somebody who has contributed nothing. So it seems to me that uh, egalitarianism can be seen as a kind of distorted form of, of uh, desertism. It's distorted because it, it, it relies upon the assumption that everybody deserves just as much as everybody else. It seems to me that we don't all deserve the same amount. We certainly don't. We don't want to say that all our students deserve the same grade, you know, or, or that, that seems right, um, or, or that everybody deserves to spend the same amount of time in the penitentiary. Penitentiary, right. you know, some people don't deserve to spend any time there, and other people, unfortunately, deserve to spend some time there. So, the uh, there would be egalitarianism. Now, now we can think of. Uh, Another respect in which egalitarianism seems to run into trouble that my view doesn't run into trouble. One of the greatest objections to egalitarianism of the sort that I just described is the leveling down objection that came from Parfit. That is, if you have a society in which some people are wealthy and some people are poor, and we think that the currency of justice is wealth, then we think, well, this would be a move toward justice if we could get these people all to be equal, if they if they had equal shares of the currency of justice. Now, if we if we have that intuition that a move toward equality would be a move toward greater justice, then, as Parfit pointed out, it wouldn't matter whether we equalized at the higher level or whether we equalized at the lower level, because either one of them would be a move toward equalization. And if egalitarianism were true, it would be a move toward greater justice. But I think you can see that moving toward equality at the lower level, just taking money away from the richer people, assuming that that's the currency of justice, and just say burning it, might result in a situation in which we had an equal distribution. But it's, it's preposterous to suppose that that would yield a greater level of distributive justice in the country. A much better idea would be to say that we would get a greater level of justice in the country if we saw to it that the distribution of the currency were in accord with desert, not just that it's equal. In one strange case, 
an equal distribution might be required by justice. That would be the case where people were, in fact, equally deserving. But in the real world, that doesn't happen very often. But so let me let me ask one sort of quick clarifying question. Um, uh, Are there on your view um, vast differences uh, among people's um, levels or among people's um, community essential needs as such? Uh, among community essential needs, I think some of them are going to differ and some of them are not going to differ very much. That is, uh, the need to have uh, an army and a police force to, to secure you, that, that's pretty much going to be the same for all of us. Now, maybe a tremendously wealthy person can afford to have his own bodyguards and he doesn't need to have um, the Secret Service provide bodyguards for him. <laughs> But uh, I'm just imagining a possible person. It could be a person like that. Right. Uh, but when you turn to something like health care, I think there you see a case in which people have different uh, levels of need. Some very healthy people, you know, they might get along pretty well for quite a long time without having much health insurance. Whereas some other people, they come into the world already being tremendously needy. They need, they really have great needs for uh, health, health insurance and health care. And though everybody might, we might say everybody is alike in this respect. Everybody or all people are alike in this respect. They all need to have, um, they all need to have the community provide somehow for their health care in case of need. But since people's needs differ so much, some people deserve to get a lot of health care from the government or the government to ensure that they get that health care somewhere, either from private insurance or from a single payer or from from generous hospitals. So they deserve to get it from somebody. And other people don't, don't really need all that much. Now, a similar thing happens with education. And a similar thing happens with respect to such things as uh, interstate highways and sewer systems. No, I, I don't get my, my water is not delivered in a pipe to my house. I have my own well, so I'm OK on that front. But if a flood should come through here and destroy my property and I need to be restored, uh, then I would have greater needs. So people have all different size uh, needs. And I, my claim is that we'd have perfect justice if uh, all these political economic uh, need, desserts were satisfied. I see. Um, so let me just try to articulate the, the, the main contrast between your version of desertism and then uh, the, a, a standard sufficiency view. So uh, let, me, let me know if this is, is right. So the sufficiency view, I take it uh, from um, – the, the 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 Fred Feldman version of of desertism. The sufficiency <laughs> view is inadequate because it doesn't recognize the possibility of a society's being unjust, uh, being unjust, even under conditions where everyone has enough, but people are getting less than what they deserve. Uh, yes, and I have I have an example in the book that's supposed to illustrate this in a kind of striking way. That is, I imagine a case in which we have some wealthy people and some middle class people and we have some some poor people who are doing doing badly and they're doing so badly that they fall below their sufficiency level. 
And it's necessary that uh, some some of the currency of uh, justice be redistributed from the wealthy people to the poor people. Now, suppose among the wealthy people, there are some who are blue and some who are green. Very wealthy people, some blue, some green. Suppose the government then says, okay, we're going to take all this money from the green people and give it to the poor people to get them up to their sufficiency level. But we're not going to take anything away from the equally wealthy blue people to give to the to the people who are under their thresholds. And suppose the system works. That is, roughly speaking, by discriminating, what did I say, the green people? Yeah, yeah. By discriminating against them and taking their money, we get everybody up above the the um, sufficiency level. Now, a, a straightforward version of sufficientism says we have perfect justice if everybody is above the sufficiency level. On this arrangement, everybody has been brought above the sufficiency level. But it seems to me that it would have been done in a very unjust way. That is by discriminating on the basis of color among the rich people to see who's going to supply the money to get the poor people up above their their thresholds. A, A much better way of doing it would be to tax all the rich people an equal amount, regardless of their color, so as to help to support the the worst off people and get them above their sufficiency level. But sufficientism doesn't say anything about how people above the sufficiency level are to be treated. It just says that we have justice when everybody is up to their threshold or above. And that seems to me to be wrong. Now, I also think that sometimes there are people who have been so rotten and they behave so badly and they violated the laws so much that they don't deserve to be up to their sufficiency level. Uh, Imagine a bunch of uh, really horrible criminals who've uh, drug dealers, uh, murdering gang members and innocent people and committing all these terrible crimes. And suppose they have been found guilty in a court of law and they've been sentenced to a long time in an unpleasant prison. And they're in the prison and they come forward and they say, I'm not up to my sufficiency level. I'm not getting enough um, money and leisure time activities <laughs> and whatever else it is that they think that they they uh, they would like to have in order to, to, to have reached a point at which I, I think that getting more of these things wouldn't make me any happier. That's Frankfurt's characterization. Well, the, I would be prepared to say, yeah, they are below their sufficiency level. They haven't got so much that getting more couldn't make them happier. But I don't think there's any injustice there because I think they don't deserve to be up to their sufficiency level. So I I just completely reject the idea that we have justice when everybody is brought up to the sufficiency level. Uh, I think some people deserve to be below the sufficiency level. And I think that even among people who are above the sufficiency level, uh, there's ways of treating them which in some cases would be uh, uh, violations of the requirements of justice. Right. Um, excellent. So um, uh, I'm going to, I want to sort of move on to a, uh, to a, a sort of final question. Um, uh, if I may, you know, uh, let me just note to our listeners that um, uh, we're only scratching the surface in this, uh, in this interview. There's a lot of detail that we're uh, uh, um, sort of skipping over and um also, uh, I'm afraid, just for time constraint reasons, we, we're not able to get to um, 
a very fascinating discussion in Fred's book about uh, the priority, uh, uh, the priority view, um, which uh, uh, which Fred raises uh, uh, questions about, and even raises the question of whether it, in, in, at the end of the day, is even a, qu- a conception of of justice at all, rather than some other kind of conception. But um, since we're, 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 we're nearing an hour uh, for the interview, um, let me just ask Fred, if I may sort of one sort of uh, sort of big picture kind of question. Why do you think it's, um, why do you think desertism has had um, the kind of, uh, we might say uh, less than fully, um, uh, um, why hasn't desertism gotten its due? Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, uh, in um, discussions about distributive justice uh, over the past uh, couple decades, what, 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 do you have any thoughts about? Um, yeah. About that. Yes. Yeah, I think that's a great question, and I do have some thoughts about it. And one thought that I have about it is this: people going back to Leibniz and to Mill and to others who uh, Sidgwick and others who talked about uh, justice as desert. When they talked about dessert, they were always thinking of moral merit. And the idea that comes that, that stands out then as desertism is the idea that the state should see to it that the currency of justice is distributed in accord with moral merit. That just doesn't seem right. It just it just seems like a nutty idea. And it seems like a nutty idea for a, a variety of reasons. Um some of which were brought out by Rawls. Now, my form of desertism doesn't say that we have justice when you have uh, distributions in accord with moral merit, because I'm not making use of moral merit as the desert base upon which people deserve their share of the currency of justice. I'm making out the idea, developing the idea that uh, the desert basis for getting your share of, of the currency of justice is political economic desserts, which are the kinds of needs that I described uh, earlier. So I think part of the problem is that when people thought of desertism, they always thought of this moralistic uh, happiness in heaven, suffering in hell version of desertism. And it is a pretty implausible view. And so people people didn't buy into desertism because they didn't recognize that there were other options for desertism. And I think the other reason why desertism has fallen into disfavor, well, I hate to blame it all on such a, a, an extraordinary, wonderful, impressive person, but I think it's Rawls's fault. <laughs> he did it. That is... He presented a series of arguments in a theory of justice um, in in which he said uh, desertism is false. He says it's easy to see that desertism is false. And then he gave reasons. He gave some arguments to show that desertism is false. And some of those arguments, uh, you know, Rawls is a wonderful guy and fabulously uh, knowledgeable and very smart. But I think his writing style in some cases is a little bit difficult to fathom. And I think some of these arguments had never really been studied with great care. And we hadn't figured out exactly what Rawls was talking about, um, but um, they were anyway persuasive and people moved on to different theories. I think one of these Rawlsian arguments, do we have time to talk about one of the Rawlsian yeah, arguments? Yeah, sure. Let's, let's, do so. let's, let's do so. 
One of the Rawlsian arguments, which he didn't discuss too much in the theory of justice, but he did discuss more in later uh, writings, was this argument about the impracticability of uh, desertism as a theory of justice. And he says it's so, you know, in a pluralistic society like what we've got here in the United States now, we've got lots of different religious traditions and we have lots of different moral views and different conceptions of human virtue. And um, we try to live together with these differences and um, we just don't agree about what would make for a really virtuous person. You know, patriotism and loyalty, for example, are good good illustrations of this. Some people think that patriotism is a great virtue and other people are a little bit questionable about it. We don't know really what makes for a moral virtue. And hence, if we don't know what makes for moral virtue, we can't agree about what makes for moral virtue, then it's going to be very hard for us to come to any agreement about what justice requires in any case, because after all, as Rawls thinks, justice is happiness in accord with virtue. That's a the phrase that he uses. And so we wouldn't be able to agree what justice requires in any case, because as a pluralistic society, we have different views about virtue and they're not going to be resolvable. And I think that that, that really, really points up a difference between what Rawls was looking for. Uh, You know, Rawls says in that context, only God could make these judgments about who's virtuous, and hence only God could tell what would be a, dis- a good a, a just distribution. Now, I think this points up a very interesting and important distinction between what I'm trying to do in my book, what I think that many other people who've worked on uh, distributive justice have been trying to do, and what Rawls was trying to do in his work. I think he was trying to come up with a conception of justice that could be used in practice maybe taught in civics classes to children, or maybe maybe when uh, legislators are thinking about what bill to pass, they could say, well, does this really return benefits to the morally good people or not so good people? You know, how, how, how are we going to consider that? Now, I'm, I'm not, and a, a good theory of justice on that view would be one that would, would be smoothly implementable in practice. I'm not looking for a view that has that feature. I'm looking for a view that has a different feature. I'm looking for a view that would be true. <laughs> I'm looking for a view, uh, maybe a little bit less pretentiously, that uh, thoughtful people could come to accept while in reflective equilibrium. That is a view about justice, which we could we, we could say, uh, the theory implies that such and such distribution would be just and when I think about that distribution and I contemplate it, yeah, it does look just to me. And the theory says that this distribution would be unjust. And when I think about that distribution, yeah, it, it really would be unjust. The fact that the theory then is not smoothly implementable in practical circumstances is no no mark against it. It would be a theory, let, let's suppose we come up with a theory that's true. We could then agree, this this is the truth about distributive justice. Now, for purposes of implementation, we need to find some simple, easy-to-apply rules that will approximate the truth. Uh, I haven't been trying to do that. I, I, I haven't been trying to find simple rules. I think that the philosophical question has priority over the practical question. First, we have to figure out what justice is. 
Then once we know what justice is, then we can try to find a easily implementable set of models that we can use to uh, implement roughly the idea. Well, Fred, with that, why don't we um, why don't we close? So, um, thank you very much uh, for your time today uh, in talking about your book, and thank you, listener, uh, for joining us for our discussion. Um, we've been talking about uh, Professor Fred Feldman's book. The title of the book is "Distributive Justice: Getting What We Deserve from Our Country." And again, uh, this book is published by. Oxford University Press. Uh, Thank you for listening to New Books in Philosophy, and uh, I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.